Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the Outdoor Living Hour of Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. If you're following along in your homeowner handbook that we send out as a free service every year, it's in calendar form. It gives you a lineup of topics that we'll be covering each week during the broadcast, different featured elements of our partner, and then the back is our updated referral directory for the year should you need a contractor service provider for your home castler cabin it's easy quick access on the back sheet you don't even have to take it off the wall to look at it well if you're following along with that you know today january 13th the ultimate garden hour with agriscaping we're talking bare root fruit trees justin ronner's in studio and uh nice he you, you, you settled down yet? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm settled down. I mean, a little little crazy riding in this morning, but there's a lot of orange signs on the freeways and roads. So, you know, pay attention to that if you're here in Arizona. Things change on weekends on your drive-in and wherever you're trying to get. It might be different than you expected. Especially if you're a country guy like me out in the, out in the boonies, I guess you could say, out in Queen Creek. You know, we don't pay attention as much to transitions between Queen Creek and North Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> hey, dot sends out an email newsletter on Fridays that gives you a preview of weekend closures. And I'm on that. And every time I don't check it, it bites me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's one of those, you know, I was unintentionally uninformed, but that's a lot of people right now in the garden. You might've had a great experience this last week of a similar feeling where you felt a little underinformed and your plants froze, (laughs) which looking forward to the week, you know, it's it's a beautiful week to be in Arizona this week. My goodness. Everybody wants to be here right now. Supposed to be up to the 70s yeah. like next week. Yeah. Lows in the 50s, highs in the 70s. We only got a 20-degree difference. That's the most beautiful time to be out in, in the garden, out in your yard. So this is a great precursor to a, a wonderful week of being outside. Yes, it is. And uh, you had mentioned when we were talking this week, uh, you, you've been... You, and, and we'll get to bare root fruit trees, but uh, number of people, you know, kind of got caught off guard by the frost. There, there was ice several mornings in our water troughs for the horses, which only happens about every five to seven years. Right. So you know, there, there's definitely been uh, some plant damage. And, you know, we talked about it. It was funny when we talked about it. In November and December, it was still fairly warm, and we felt silly talking about it. But, you know, it, every now and then it does happen. If you're not prepared, wham. Yep, you got to be prepared to kind of at a, at a moment's notice because just like this week versus last week, you know, it, the, the temperature can change by 20 degrees, even 30 degrees from one week to the next. And, and that can hit you, hit you pretty hard, especially if you see the temperatures go below 35. That's what we warned you months ago is say, hey, if it's hitting 35 on the lows, you got to be ready for that. You got to be ready to be putting the frost cloths out for your tropicals. And then as it gets below even 25 in some places, and we had hard freezes this last week in some parts of the valley and parts of Arizona, uh, even in the lower areas where it should normally be relatively warm. So it's, uh, it's a little tough out there. So for somebody that was caught off guard, has some frost damage, you know, is there anything to do uh, or is it just best to, you know, rip the Band-Aid off, pull those plants out and get get restarted replanting now? 
Well, I would look at your plant, especially if you've got tomatoes out there. I mean, there's a lot of places, a lot of people. We had a lot of calls. Oh, we got our tomatoes. They're froze all the way to the ground. It says, well, look at them again. You know, they're going to look kind of almost a burgundy color at the top where it gets the freeze and they'll shrivel up at the top. But if you get looking a little bit closer down to the bottom, because as it shrivels, it actually starts creating almost a little blanket of itself on the lower part of that tomato plant. You know, so you've got these multiple, you know, we got some multiple branches, hopefully coming off the bottom of that tomato plant. And so if you had a nice round tomato plant before and now it's this kind of shaggy looking uh, mess of stuff at the top, I would I would hold on to that upper part. Let it stay for a couple of days, maybe even this week and see what kind of recovery you get this week. Look for some green growth, new green growth lower to the base, because it's certainly a lot easier to just clip off the the actual dead stuff and allow the new growth to grow than it is to try to restart a tomato plant because one of my favorite times to start my tomatoes is actually in the fall and so right now i've got some good sized tomato plants that even have tomatoes on them you know i've got some good heirloom tomatoes on a lot of our tomatoes uh, in our micro farms around the valley and some of them have froze back you know i checked on them right after the hardest freeze this week and i looked at them i said you know they're not a complete loss what's going to happen is it's what we call a freeze prune and so it's by nature, it has trimmed itself back significantly on the longer stems, which had grown out over the warmer last month or so that we had. But then as we jump into spring, if we can protect that core, it's going to multi-branch out and I'm going to have a lot more fruiting ends. So now I've got a benefit rather than a, a detriment to my garden and nature did it for me. So we didn't have to plan ahead and trim my tomatoes. Nature did it for me. And so that's a value. Now, a lot of people have brassicas out right now, which are like your cauliflowers, broccolis, um, uh, your kales. You know, a lot of those things, they actually benefit from a little bit of frost on them. And they benefit because they actually sweeten up. So this would be probably the, the, the best tasting kale and broccoli leaf and broccoli that you're probably going to get out of your season is what, we, what we're picking right now. Uh, and if you want a good example of that, we're actually going to be selling a lot of produce uh, out at the home show. So we got the the we we brought some harvest from areas within 15 miles of the home show. We brought some backyard garden produce that we'll actually be selling and and sampling there, so you can actually taste some of these brassicas and how sweet they are after a frost. And we're right there at the home show. It's at the state fairgrounds uh, today and tomorrow. So come join us out there if you want to come check us out. Ask more questions if you need it. Opens at 10 o'clock. Opens at 10 o'clock. I'm going straight from here to there. And when you were saying you brought it all within 15 miles, so this isn't something that you've brought over from Queen Creek or the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens or yours. I mean, this is like other agriscaping projects y'all have done closer to the home show that you're you're re- pulling these from yeah absolutely and that's really our our, the ultimate garden game plan for 2024 is helping create a more localized system here in the phoenix area and hopefully inspiring people across the globe to be able to do something similar and the ultimate garden to us is one that's more productive than it is consumptive and everyone's always trying to achieve that and here at agriscaping we got the technology to help people actually achieve that through microclimates and understanding how all these crazy microclimates around a house work but then be able to integrate that into the local food economy. So these are micro farms that we've worked on either in the last six months or last two years that are here close to that site. And we're harvesting from those locations and we're bringing them to market for those clients. So that's, that's what we're doing. And those people that you're harvesting from locally, I mean, are, are they getting paid for their produce? And then, you know, 
you're selling it or how, yeah, how does so that work for them? It's it's what we call the Utopian Harvest Model. And that was a, an organization uh, founded by a number of us here in the Valley. Um, it's, it was kind of a gift to the agriscaping system. It was actually a, a system donated back to us because all the work we did for it. And it's it's a system that allows for a, it's like a consignment service for your produce. So let's say you're someone that doesn't <laughs> want to have to do all the all the work of the selling of it. You don't want to have to talk to people. You're more of a plant person than a people person. Well, we, we put the plants in the hands of the people people and, and we get it <laughs> sold for you. And that's basically what happens. They'll get a percentage based on the amount of work they've done. We've got some clients that they get 25% and others get 70%. So it just depends on how many pieces of the puzzle you yourself care for and how much of that process you want to be a part of. And if you just want to sit back and watch your garden grow, well, then you're going to be at the 25% level and the garden can be nurtured and cultivated for you in your backyard. As long as you're willing to put the investment in, obviously, to get it started. Uh, we're not just going to take anybody's backyard. It's got to be a garden that follows the same protocols that fall under the Utopian Harvest Food Safety Plan, which is all about um, naturally grown, pesticide-free. And so if you're interested in that, first step in all cases is to get an assessment of your site you can go to agriscaping.com and go to Get Started, and uh, there's actually a significant discount. If you do catch us at the home show, it's 100 bucks off that initial assessment, which includes a full microclimate map. So if you really want to know how to grow and where to grow best, it's a great place to get started because microclimates don't really change on your property. You know, Even though the temperature may change, your, your significant microclimates and how they react to your weather is not going to change. Now, you may not know this off the top of your head. But you've got my curiosity running. Of these farms in a 15-mile radius around the fairgrounds, which is McDowell and 19th Avenue, mm -hmm. how many? Were you pulling from five? Were you pulling right now, from I'm 15? Just, I'm just pulling, pulling from two. From two? From two. We'd okay. love to have a lot more. So it's not like we have a ton of produce, but it's a good sampling. Uh -huh. And that's kind of how we look at it. I've got three more in the works that, that are significant in size enough that would actually help us be able to open a, a, a market stand that's going to be up here in some of the farmer's markets up here. We're, we're really close. I mean, this spring looks like it'll be a good spring, and we'll be able to open up some more Utopian Harvest market stands and market networks up here in this area. And so we're really excited about that. Uh, but yeah, just two. And so how do I get at it as the third? So to get at it as the third starts with that initial assessment on your property. And then from that, we're going to be able to identify, are you ready now? You know, what kind of productive capacity do you have? How, what productive capacity are you wanting to access? Uh, are your methods in the last two years conducive to our sales technique? And if it's not, we're going to need to create a plan that gets you to the level that we can sell through that network. We might have other suggestions for you, but that's kind of the game plan. We want to get that assessment, understand your microclimates, the productive capacity. We also look at your rainwater and gray water harvesting potentials to optimize your water usage. So a lot of cool things go into it to help the site be the most productive at the least cost as possible. If you'd like to join the conversation, I have a question for Agriscaping. Justin's in studio, one 767 4348 That's one 888 for you Text questions can be sent to 411-923. And like you said, he'll be out at the home show uh, later today, so you can catch him there as well.
regular listeners that have tuned in for years and years, you know, this is second Saturday of the month, has been talking trees for about the last decade, and that's Justin has changed that with the Ultimate Garden Hour. We're going to cover bare root fruit trees, but I keep having more questions about this setup. Um, <laughs> what would I be called if, you know, if I'm now number three on your list? Am I uh, an agriscape harvest point? Am I a utopian provider? What You'd be a micro farm in a the micro utopian farm. harvest network. A micro farm in the utopian harvest network. There you go. Now, how big of a space do I need to provide? Do I have to be able to produce a certain amount of produce to get added to that list? You know, the, the amount of produce isn't as, as, as important as your willingness to be a part of the program and follow the, the guidelines therein, I'd say. Uh, I mean, we had people as small as, I mean, one of the smallest home sites that we had was about a 6,000 square foot home. You know, six out, not a home, but 6,000 square foot property with about a 2,000 square foot home on it. And, and so there was very minimal outdoor space, but then they grew vertically. So they used these wonderful gardens called the Flower Street Urban Gardens. They had a soil-based system. Will Alex be out there with you? Alex will be out there with me. Nice. He's always with me. We, we, we always bring Alex, and <laughs> Alex brings us. We kind of trade off. We work together, get a few spots and make a nice little corner and full, fill it full of plants, make it beautiful. You know, we have fun out there. And Alex does uh, Flower Street. Urban farm. It's it's yep. a vertical growing system, and so you were in the six thousand square foot. They were, they were implementing some of those. Yep. So they had a number of those. So they had about fifteen hundred square feet, but they were producing on the year about seventeen thousand dollars in revenue wow. just off of their little backyard and helping in the in in transitioning all that food right into the markets. And we really only worked one major market then, and it, we helped start that market, which was the Power Ranch. Farmers Market. I don't know if it still exists today. There's been a lot that were lost through the um, the COVID era. You know, there were a lot of a lot of these uh, farmers markets that just had a lot of big challenges. A lot of farmers had to sell off land stuff too. So there's not as many farmers available. But another way that we've had people contribute to the Utopian Harvest System is growing sprouts and microgreens right on their countertops in their apartment. So it's it's a scenario where it's the willingness makes a bigger difference than the property size. And then as your property size grows, you know, you might be able to get to the point where you're completely independent of the Utopian Harvest System, like one of our clients and students was. I mean, Cecilia's farm in Gilbert. She lives off Farmdale. Actually, she lives in Mesa. But she ended up producing enough that she created her own market and her own market stands. And we were glad to be a part of that and helping her transition. to. She ended up being the main farmer for that Power Ranch Farmer's Market for years. And on the apartment side of things, if somebody has a patio that's aligned right and you've got sun and... You know, I, I visualize that would actually be easier to set up uh, because you're just getting your containers, putting in your soil. You don't have any pesticide history to worry about. Right. Um, if you're, you, you don't have cats and rats that, you know, <laughs> can, can get into your garden, you're elevated a little bit. Yep. Uh, you'd mentioned the Flower Street Urban. There's Tower Gardens that yep. uh, is, is another form of vertical gardening that has a, you know, it, it, that requires electricity and it has a pump that, you know, puts water in the top and it filters down. And, you know, there, there's a lot of different vertical growing options. And it, Jay Harper always says, you know, the, the funniest thing is the easiest thing to grow your herbs and your sprouts is the most expensive thing you buy at the store. 
Yeah. And you can do that very easily on a patio very easy. Garden and, or apartment. And the turnover is quick. I mean, you're, you're seed to supper in seven days or less on a lot of those things when you're doing <laughs> micro farming like that. I mean, that kind of stuff, it's really fun. And, you know, this is a unique time of year, unique day to day and tomorrow at the at the Maricopa County Home Show there in our area, it's called the greenhouse. So the greenhouse section, and we're right at the front of the whole greenhouse section, right next to the Maricopa County um, County Extension Office. So all the master gardeners are there. So great time to go and ask questions, any question you got. They're all right there next to us as well. We got the education center. And then all this new technology growing vertically, everything you're talking about, it's all in a row right there in the greenhouse section at the home show. So if you want to come and check out and see, touch, feel, even taste the production that you can get out of these unique technologies for growing food at home, come check it out. I mean, we're all in a row. There's a bunch of us right there all showcasing these great technologies on growing stuff in very small spaces as well as growing things elegantly into your landscape. I mean, so there's a lot of great, great stuff happening right there this weekend. And that greenhouse area, isn't that the the Wesley Bolin building, Plaza I don't know what they call it. Okay. I, know, I know what we call it right now, but it's kind of it was it's the building in between, and they have a greenhouse cover over the top of it, so we're out of the main elements. It's it's a beautiful little little section we created there. All right. Well, we only have about two minutes here before the break, so I don't want to get started on bare root. I, you know, I'll, let's use a long segment for that. Um, real quick, briefly touch just uh, winter lawns, real quick in ninety seconds. So winter lawn. So hopefully you, if you got a winter lawn that is uh, you got a perennial type rye, it probably did a little frost on the top. What I'd recommend is don't be walking on it uh, in the early mornings uh, because it's going to actually break the blades of grass. It's going to cause some challenges. It can actually create some die off. Wait till the frost has, has melted off. And uh, only water it when the blades of grass, after it's melted off in the afternoon, go walk on a little bit in the afternoon. And if the blades of grass, if they stay matted down and they don't bounce back, you need to give it a little bit of water. You know, that's a little anemic. But normally during this time of year, you don't really have to water almost at all if it's already been established. So there's your winter lawn tip of the day. And we still need to fertilize it. It's not uh, quite as crucial, but if you really want that deep, rich color, you can't just let you know forget about it you still got to add a little bit of fertilizer yep a liquid fertilizer especially this week as the temperatures in the 50s to 70s you'll want to spray that on uh we like doing it in the mid-morning around 10 o'clock and uh, and then everything will be happy for another month or so and what do you use on a liquid fertilizer something you just attach to a hose and spray out there yep and we're looking for something that's mostly nitrogen based that'll be your best bet uh we like doing balanced stuff like with fish emulsions but i always mint put a little bit of mint oil in it to offset that nasty smell waiting for the bare root fruit trees i'm really not trying to string you out but <laughs> it's just so got, curious about got, everything else <laughs> well we do have one one other thing jennifer brought in uh some bread for us this morning and i uh and i i don't i've yet to find a bread i didn't like well this came right off of uh agriscaping's newsletter and so agriscaping sends out a newsletter each week and justin i love it because tasty tuesdays yes it's simple <laughs> that's it's, right it's one thing you know it's what 
one thing to be harvested and one thing to grow. And so this week, uh, raspberry and mint were highlighted, and there's a recipe in the newsletter. So I tried it, and I brought it in. I have to say, if you try it, it does need a little more, bit of moisture because it's dry here in the Arizona, so recipes have to be twer- uh, tweaked a little bit sometimes. So I added a half a cup, and Justin and I decided this morning it actually needs a glaze on it. So it's a good start, good way to use mint and raspberry. Yeah, a nice lemon glaze on the top I think would be amazing for it. And uh, and it's, yeah, it's good. I'm, I've been enjoying it on the break here. It's a great, great bread. Most of the time I'll be able to taste it and be able to get one of these myself because before we send it out. This one I missed. It was a it was a crazy holiday yes, it was. season for us all, so I didn't get to taste this one. I, I'm on a zucchini bread kick. Is there a recipe in there for that? Oh, we have some great zucchini bread. That mm. mo- usually that's around the summertime when yeah. we have zucchini available here locally, but uh, definitely want to be on that. I mean, we have zucchini cookies, zucchini bread. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do with zucchini, mostly because... I grew up where we did binge gardening. Don't recommend it, by the way. Um, and binge gardening is basically we planted a whole bunch of stuff all at one time, spring break, and then you know we hit hit middle of the summer, and now I've got a thousand zucchinis we need to eat, and we had to find so many different ways to turn them into something because even our neighbors weren't taking the free mm-hmm. zucchini anymore. <laughs> they so locked we had to the give door. Them, yeah, we had to give them the bread, the cookies, the pies. You know, we were creating all this crazy stuff out of zucchinis. So, hey, yeah. Justin, tell people how they can get that newsletter right in their email. So in the email, just go to agriscaping.com and actually sign up. It's right there at the top. You can just sign up for our newsletter, and it's it's a useful newsletter. And the other thing is, is when you put in your zip code, it'll be part of the newsletter questioning. If you're here in Arizona, because we have a nationwide newsletter, but we have a special one specific for the Arizona folk that comes out on Thursday. So there's one on Tuesday, and there's one on Thursday. And so you'll get the stuff that's really locally focused for you. And that's an important piece of our puzzle here at Agriscaping. All right. Bear root fruit. Bear root trees. fruit Now trees. is the time. Now now definitely is the time, and here's the tricky part. Because we're warming up this week, it's like this weekend, great time to get a lot of those bare roots in the ground so that they don't start blossoming before they're planted. And that's the key. You want to catch your deciduous fruit trees, and that's really what we talk about when it is the bare root fruit trees. We're talking about deciduous fruit trees, trees that lose their leaves in the wintertime, and they typically bloom in the spring. We want those things planted when they're most dormant, which is before they start budding and start blooming. That's right now. And so there are a few sources out there of nurseries that are carrying the bare root fruit trees, and they are completely bare roots. They're just sitting in some mulch all piled together, and the root bases on these things are usually quite large. And that's one of the benefits of the bare root fruit tree is that you get a large root base. You get a you get a, essentially a tree with a root ball that's as big as a 15-gallon up to even a 24-inch box tree, you know, for, for under under 60 bucks in most cases. And so with those kind of price points, that's a big tree, whereas your 24-inch box, when you're getting them all bloomed out and they're already leafed out, you know, they're going to be 160-plus to be able to get that fruit tree. So big tree, less price, now's the time to get in on that, but you got to act fast because those things, if it gets too warm like it will be this week, those nurseries are going to take those trees – trim those roots and throw them into five-gallon pots, and they're going to charge you more for it. So that's kind of the key. You get it for the biggest tree for the cheapest price. Now, if you're new to that ball game, get to know the education. We do have some education online at agriscaping.com as well. From the newsletter, a lot of education inside of that. we got a whole mastery program to teach you the skills and trades. And, you know, coming to the home show this morning, also a good idea because you got a lot of the county extension, the master gardeners to help you along your path to get those things done. And if not, allow the nursery to grow up for you. Wait a few weeks. They'll all be potted up. They'll be leafed out. 
and uh, they'll be resold again with all the leaves on them and stuff, and you know for sure they're going to work when you make that transplant happen. Now, what types of varieties of trees come bear fruit, bear root? I mean, I know we're talking fruit, but you know, let, let's dive in. Let's start with apples. All right, so you got your apples, your peaches, your plums, your cherries, your pomegranates actually can fit into that category as well, your figs, you know, your blueberries, your apricots. If I didn't say plums already, plums. If I did say it, I'm saying it again, plums. <laughs> uh, you got your mulberries, one of my favorite shade trees uh, for here in the Arizona climates. And, and they can handle, a lot of these deciduous trees can handle cold all the way up into northern Arizona. And you may want ones that can handle a little bit harder freezes. And so things you want to check out are your frost hours. Your most productive ones are going to have frost hour requirements under 250 hours if you're down in the valley. And if you're up in the northern parts of Arizona, then you're going to be looking at ones that have closer to 500-hour chill requirements in order to be productive. And that's another key. So make sure you're looking at those tags. Look for the ones with the lower chill hours. Now, you, we can still here in the valley work with trees that need higher chill requirements, up to about 350, 400 but what you're going to need to do is get that planted in a microclimate conducive to that type of chill hour. Because we can get enough chill hours to work a 400-hour system if you've got it in what we call a D zone, a D microclimate. If you don't know what that is, look up agriscaping microclimates. We've got some education online to help you learn a little bit about the classifications of these microclimates. But those microclimates are key. If you want to grow cherries in Arizona, which we have and do, and these are traditional cherries, not just tropical cherries, You'll need to make sure that it's planted first in the correct microclimate to get sufficient chill hours so that it will produce cherries for you. And it also, it's curious because it needs chill hours, a lot of shade in the wintertime, but it needs good sun in the summer. That's, That's a tricky a trick. little spot. That's a tricky spot, but it's possible because of how the sun moves and how microclimates basically work. And that's why we call it a D. D microclimate, full shade in the wintertime. D microclimate, however, in the summer, gets some late afternoon sun, gets some good light. And it gets sufficient enough that the blooms will work, the fruit will still produce, and it'll actually produce some real good fruit for you. And we talk deciduous, you know, it's trees that lose their leaves in the wintertime. Mm -hmm. But in the desert, not all of them are 100% leaf drop. I mean, there's times, you had mentioned mulberry is right. one of your favorite shade trees. This is the first year I can remember ever having to rake mulberry leaves. Wow. Because we just... They, 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 don't they don't slough off enough, fast enough, that the wind usually gets them, or when I mow the lawn, it picks them up. Because if it's not on the lawn, I just let it, you know, mulch back into the into the basin. But we had a hard enough freeze that there was like four or five times I had to go out there and actually rake it because I was worried that the sprinklers weren't watering enough of the lawn, yeah. and it was all just collecting on top of these mulberry leaves. But Those we, big we... leaves, they'll ca capture a lot of that water from your from your sprinklers, for sure. So on those, I mean, it's a, it, it's absolutely true. And a lot of times we'll have to knock some of the leaves off just to kind of enhance its ability, to, or we even put ice around the base. So if you have, you know, you have holiday parties and stuff, we would actually take our ice and intentionally put it around the bases of our trees to enhance a little bit of that chill hour at the root base, try to help it spark the leaf drop a little faster for us. So those are some of the tricks. And if you're going to do that, um, now is probably a good time to do some of that. Most of those leaves will drop when you got a chilly rain like we had this last week, followed by some good chill time, and then you'll get a lot more of that leaf drop. Now, it's not a requirement for some of the lower chills to even drop their leaves in, in order to still produce. Like we have a lot of the desert adapted at apple trees, the Anna apple, the Dorset golden. 
the Einschemmer, those ones don't really need to lose their leaves to still produce, but they do produce more, we found, when they get enough of that chill and they do lose their leaves. Uh, and so that's that's kind of an important piece. I mean, you're dealing with nature. It's got fluctuations and it's got seasonality. And one year to the next, usually what we'll have is we'll experience a bumper crop one year. The next year, it's going to be a little lower. And then the following year, another bumper crop. So it's usually in every other year. We find that a lot also with a variety of citruses here in the valley that'll have off on and off years. But we hope that you'll always get at least a little bit of production. Now, on your Anna apples, at the end of the stem... Mm-hmm. You know, you'll get six, eight blooms come springtime, and each one of those flowers, be, you know, becomes an apple. Well, you've got to thin those to get an apple of any size, so you don't have like little cherry size apples. How do you like to thin them? Do you like to go take the blooms off and shake the tree, or do you wait till they've actually set? to make sure there's apples there and then thin them from that point. Well, there's two different theories. And there is a way, if you know the difference on what you're looking at in the flowers, there's always one flower we call the king flower on that cluster. So that king flower will produce the largest apple of that flower grouping. And so you could do it at the bloom stage and then you you pull off the flowers. I'll usually always leave at least two just to make sure I didn't make a mistake in grabbing the wrong flower. <laughs> but there's a, the king bloom is usually the one in the center. It's the one that starts blooming the first out of the cluster. That's the one that's going to likely produce your largest, your largest fruit. It's got the easiest channel for all the nutrients. That's why it grows a little bit bigger. It's usually the one in the center of the cluster. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is just let it bloom. Let it see. Make sure you got enough pollinators. It's going to pollinate, and you're going to have these little apple buds. And then we like to create either you keep a cluster, and I'll keep three apples. So there's the other approach is that I want one big apple, or I want three medium-sized ones on that cluster. And so it just depends on the size of an apple that you want. You want more apples that are medium-sized, or you want more, or you just want a fewer apples, bigger size, and that's kind of your ratio. Either grab the one king, king bloom, or just keep three of the smaller ones, and you'll get three apples on that edge. And that's Anna's what I've had the most success with. But you had mentioned Dor- Golden Dorset. Mm-hmm. I know that is is a good producer. You mentioned one other one. That the Einschimmer. So it's a yes, harder It sounded apple. like very uh, German. It's very German. German. Assigned the Deutsche Apfel. Yeah, yeah. It's a good apple. It's a good cooking apple. I don't like it straight off the tree because it is a very hard, dense apple. But it, And it's a little bit more upright growing from your apple varieties. It is a great one that can kind of cross-pollinate with the Annas of the Dorsets. Also can handle a little bit more of the heat. But it's just a different type of apple. If you like bacon pies and stuff, it's a great one to have for pie baking and all those kind of things as well. And it's, But again, it's a dense, it's a very dense apple. Now, as somebody starts you know, planting their trees, and you know, it gets very addicting. You know, I've got this one, now I've got to try that variety. Now I've got to try this one. Now. Eventually, you're going to run into what they call a cocktail fruit tree, where they've got the root and then they've got the graft on it. A cocktail one, they've got multiple graphs on it. So you might end up with this branch is supposed to be a dorset. This branch is supposed to be a uh, Anna. This branch is supposed to be your Arpensteimer. Ar- Ar- uh, <laughs> your Einschimmer. Einschimmer. <clears throat> what, I, I know what the rest of our garden, outdoor living, our hosts think about those. What's your opinion? Well, the, they can be useful if you got a really small space. I mean, if you want to see an example of one, uh, the Queen Creek Botanical Gardens has a beautiful display. We've got 30 different varieties of apples, just as, a, as an example, that are all in the English Garden, because the English Garden, it's the Rosaceae family is the theme, plants and trees in that section. 
And we've got a cocktail tree in there. It's a three-year-old in the ground, and you can see how it's growing. And we'll talk about the advantages and disadvantages of that type. It's better to see it so you can experience the differences. One of the challenges we find is that if you got grafted apples that don't have the same bloom period, you don't get as much production. You don't get the cross-pollination. It's like, for instance, on our tree there, we've got the Anna the Door set, and we've got a Fuji. So Fuji is kind of the less dominant out of the out of the three, and so its branches are a little more anemic looking than the others. So you don't have a beautiful round tree that you would normally get with a single type or single variety. You're going to have some variation in the growth habits of each type as well as the bloom time and harvest time. Now, the benefit of that tree is we've got a longer period of harvesting apples from that tree. You know, there's more months that we can keep harvesting. We've got a, a four-month time frame with apples on that tree. Whereas a regular tree, you've got about a month, month and a half. And so that's some of the advantage. You can expand the season, but you're not going to expand necessarily your productivity. So I have less productivity. We definitely have less productivity on the cocktail tree overall, but we have more variety and we have a longer time. So if I'm not eating all my apples and you want just a few apples at a time, that might be a better fit for you. Maury and Tempe texted in at 411-923 if you'd like to use text and wanted to know what happened to Golden Delicious Apples. She says she can't seem to find those. The Golden Delicious Apple, that's the one, I guess it kind of got outmoded by most of the industry, um, mainly because it didn't travel as well. Um, The Golden Delicious was a great apple, but it softened faster than some of the other varieties, like the newer ones, like a Honeycrisp. I mean, really got taken over by like the Honeycrisp, the Golden... The, that yeah, the golden uh, delicious. I mean, even the red delicious is hard to find now, and it's just it's just a phasing out. A lot of times, these orchards they'll go for a certain number of years, and then they'll have to plant something new. You know, there's other problems that happen to them. They start becoming more pest intolerant because they're monocropping these types of these big farms, and so that one just has been outmoded. I mean, it still exists out there. You can find it here and there, but I'm not even seeing it on list for. Um, Bare roots, actually. I haven't ha- haven't seen it for a few years. And you had said uh, you had thirty different varieties yeah. growing at the botanical gardens. Uh, how how many of those are experimental? Are they all proven to be good desert providers? They're all productive here in Arizona, and that that was a key. We made, made sure we brought ones in that we knew we could produce here. Now, some of them are in different microclimates. So, for instance, like our pink lady. So the pink lady apple that we've got out there, it's in a little bit of different microclimate. It's what we call an A microclimate. It gets a mic- morning sun, afternoon shade on the, on, the, on the regular. And part of the reason for that, that afternoon shade, is because that thing doesn't produce until, like, September here. And we need it to go all the way through the summer – and, and not burn up. <laughs> and not burn up and not turn into this shrivelly little pre-dried apple before you pick it. And that's the challenge with getting multiple varieties. But even ones like the, um, oh, what is it, the Granny Smith. So Granny Smith apple, and this I learned years ago working with one of my clients. They had a very large Granny Smith apple growing in their backyard that would produce like 300 pounds of Granny Smith apples every single year. And I'm like, how are you pulling this off? And then I went, I said, I got to visit your property. So I go visit their property. And they've got these huge trees behind it on the, on the west side. So always protected from the afternoon sun. And so we we're like, oh, it's more about, it had nothing to do with frost hours. It had everything to do with protection during the summer. And that's really the way you can expand your options. And so they effectively on that property with apple trees like that and the right microclimates, they can get apples from early May all the way through September, 
and sometimes even into October, just by how which variety you got planted and you know where you've got it planted, what kind of protection you got. So it's it's really cool. And we found that apples don't really follow frost frost hours. They don't follow frost hours. They can still be productive. It's almost uh, it, it's almost been completely disproven on the apples on the requirement <laughs> for frost time, uh, which is kind of cool. But at the same time, it makes it a little bit you know people are looking at Ted. Well, I thought you just told me I had to you know look at the frost hours and make sure I had one that had you know lower frost hours under two fifty around two fifty. It's like that's true most cases. It's just like we learned in elementary school. You know, one plus one equals two until you learn about rabbits. And now we have a totally different math. And the more you get, you learn, the more you get educated, the more you start realizing there are exceptions. And those exceptions, when you learn them, can mean a lot more production in your garden. And that's why we teach a lot at agriscaping. That's why we're education-based. So find out more. Learn more. Don't think you know everything. Because I'll tell you, there's some technology out there that will blow your mind and what you can produce in small spaces. And if you're open to learning a couple new tricks... Then and recognize how how nature can work and how we can cultivate nature. You will have a lot more production, and a lot less space than you ever had before. Now, if you're interested in doing one of these, you know, establishing it, fruit production. One of the things you know, you plant not only you know plant what you like to eat. Yeah. You know, if if you're growing something that you're not going to be eating, uh, you know, and, and your thought process is well, maybe you know. I'm going to donate this back to the to Agriscape Utopia Market Production. Um, you, you still got to supply what people consume. You Correct. Know, you can get pretty crazy out there with a lot of different unique varieties and, uh, you know, the certain microclimates in these subtropics. But if it's you're growing something nobody's going to eat, you kind of defeating the purpose here. <laughs> exactly. And that, you know, when we do our initial assessments with clients and we were doing these microclimate maps, one of the first things we do, it's a little bit of homework that they have to do is we actually have them fill out a, a, a sheet. They basically select, what do you eat? What do you like? And we have them fill that all out. And then we'll actually chart out exactly where in their yard that thing they like is going to grow best. And so that they have a better understanding of where to grow what they'll eat rather than just growing whatever they can. I mean, there's certain varieties of radishes that I wouldn't recommend anybody having because they're not the kind of radish I like to eat. Or there's certain types of fruits that I wouldn't recommend having because I don't like eating them. But other people, if they want it, it's like, we'll show you where it'll grow, right? And, and that's, a, that's a key component because we don't want things to go to waste. I mean, a lot of people are concerned growing fruit, especially in, uh, you know, here in parts of the valley because of roof rats. They don't want to attract roof rats. So word of the wise, roof rats are attracted to the rotting fruit you didn't pick. And the only reason you're probably not going to pick it is because you weren't anticipating and looking forward to eating it. So if you're growing something you don't like, you're going to put yourself in a position to attract more pests than you'd probably prefer. And that being the case, pick the stuff you really like eating. Try things out. There's, I know there's a, there's a citrus fruit tasting, I think, that's happening at a Desert Horizon Nursery here coming up, too. So these are the things to be on the lookout for. Where can you go and taste these beautiful things? Uh, where can you do that? I mean... The Queen Creek Botanical Garden, also another place opening up soon. You can taste the beauty there. And you had mentioned you've got some samples down at the home show yes. today at the State Fairgrounds. You're there 10 o'clock till, what is it, five, like five or six? Yeah. Okay. So, all right, agriscaping.com. Justin Runner, thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. 